Well, our text for today is from Titus 2, 9 through 10. We're pressing on in Titus, pressing men and women on in faithfulness in our God-given roles. Several weeks ago, we learned that the God-given role of a young married woman was that her focus uh, be on her own husband, her children, her household, or whatever the case may be. Now, this doesn't mean that you are only a housewife, but that your focus is primarily on the home. And I would add to that, if you have a job that prevents you from putting your focus primarily on your home, uh, it, it may be good to reevaluate that situation, whether or not that job is best for you. We also learned last week that the role of the man was to be the spiritual head of his household. And we also learned that you really can't lead if you're never with your family. Um, and he gave the example of Papa's Gone by Lucille Ball. But Titus was told to urge the young men to be self-controlled, to show integrity, and to have sound speech so that the gospel wouldn't be hindered. And all of us men have to realize that uh, our position in the workplace and in our community, it's just a vast mission field. And our life is our platform. But today we're looking ahead at the next two verses in Titus, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. And here we see Paul's exhortation to Titus that slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they, speaking of the Master, may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, as we jump into our text for today, uh, you may be asking yourself, well, what does this message have to do with me? I'm not a slave, and I don't even know any. So what does it have to do with me? And I think that's a fair question, and I agree that we need to explore why Paul would be writing to slaves in the first place. Uh, was this passage only for Roman slaves in Paul's day? Um, or was it written for all men, all women, and all ages? Um, as we introduce today's message, I hope that you'll come to believe that it's a message that's timely. I hope you'll come to believe that it's a message for all men and all women and all ages. This message is for us. And I certainly hope that you'll hold to the promise of God concerning Scripture that says, All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, this passage of Scripture is for us today. While there are varying estimates on the number of slaves in the Roman provinces at the time Paul was writing this, I think it's safe to say that there were literally, literally millions of slaves at that time. Uh, the numbers range uh, from, like, I've seen like as low as 7 million to like 60 million. You don't know. I don't know. Everybody's got a statistic. Uh, in fact, there were many Christian slaves, so it was necessary to exhort them regardless of the situation that they were in. And as it's evident in Paul's writing, Paul was absolutely consumed with getting the gospel out. He was consumed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was a number one in Paul's book. Nothing was going to stop him 
from propagating the gospel. Regardless of what some people have promoted through the years, I don't think that Jesus or Paul's uh, gospel was a social gospel. Uh, it was a gospel of repentance and belief. That's what he preached. It was the good news that Jesus Christ came to free His people from the bondage of sin, to redeem for Himself a people who would be redeemed not necessarily from broken systems. We've got plenty of those. Fallen governments or any of that. But He came to redeem them from their sin. That was the, the true gospel. The good news is that God's people are ransomed from God for God. Paul wasn't called to fix all the social mores of his day. If he did that, it would have deterred him from what his real message was. He was called to preach the good news, which said that although you may be a slave in your day-to-day -day life, uh, you can ultimately be free from your sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that the only gospel message, that the only message that would ever really change a master or a slave was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back to that later. But I think it's evident with all of us, God's never really concerned Himself with merely changing external things. That's not what He's about. Salvation is an inside-out transformation. And the gospel is going out to all nations, to all peoples. It's growing. It's expanding for His glory. God concerns Himself with internal things. He changes men and women regardless of where they are in society, regardless of their status. He changes them from the inside out. So as we get started into this, you know, the question is going to come up, well, what are we saying here? Does God not care whether or not people are slaves? And I would say absolutely not. In fact, as I studied this, I think Paul is radical. Comparatively, Paul is radical. Uh, on one hand, he exhorts men and women in Corinth to be faithful, to abide in whatever role they're in, and to serve faithfully. Yet on the other hand, he exhorts the Christian master Philemon uh, to view Onesimus, his slave, in a totally different light. Not just as a slave, but as a brother. For Paul, the relationship there preceded everything else. He was more concerned about uh, fixing the, uh, about the relationship of a slave to his master than he was about fixing the institution itself. Why? Because the main issue for Paul, and we're going we're gonna to harp on this today, the main issue for Paul was the gospel moving forward, the gospel going out into all the world. That was his primary focus. The issue here is salvation for the world, for all people groups. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave, I love this, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. 
You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So, you see here, the issue wasn't externals. Paul was saying, look, don't consume yourselves with trying to change your situation. Remain where you are. Bloom where you're planted. Hey, but if you get the opportunity to be free, go ahead, avail yourself of that opportunity. That's not really the point anyway. For Paul, the real issue was for Paul, the real issue wasn't so much where the person was in life, but what they did with the situation that they were given. Was the person pliable? Were they walking with God? Were they allowing him to shape their lives? Or were they like him? Were they like Saul before conversion? Uh, kicking against the goads. See, too many of us are falling into the same trap. Uh, we're in a thing where we're constantly trying to change our situation. You know, as soon as, as the heat gets turned up in our lives, we want to start moving to, to something else, doing something else. When really what we need to do is recognize God's sovereignty in that situation and allow Him to mold us and shape us in that situation. He wants to change us more than He wants to change our situation. God is concerned uh, with the internal things of man, not merely concerned with externals. But back to what we were talking about with Paul exhorting Philemon. This is what he says to Philemon. This perhaps is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, I love this right here, as a beloved brother, especially to me, how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. Paul just had an awesome heart for Onesimus, Philemon's slave. He deeply cared about his worldly affairs. He was concerned with the way that Philemon was going to treat him when he got back. But notice he didn't, uh, he didn't encourage, he did encourage Onesimus to go back and not overthrow the system. He didn't encourage him to rebel. He didn't even encourage Philemon to set him free, really. What we see here is Paul exhorting both the master and the servant. We see him exhorting the master to treat his slave with dignity and respect. Of course, I think Paul would have been absolutely thrilled if Philemon would have let Onesimus go free. But we also see him exhorting Onesimus to fulfill his duty to Philemon. Likewise, Paul tells Titus to exhort slaves to be submissive to their masters. So we've seen here that Paul's primary purpose was the propagation of the gospel. But there's another reason that Paul didn't in an outright manner condemn slavery. And here it has to do with the nature of slavery at the time that uh, Paul was writing. Slavery in biblical times was somewhat different than what we've seen in, say, the Americas for the past few hundred years. Um, slavery as we know it in America was, and I think, in my opinion, still is in a in great deal tied to race. And that's explicitly condemned in Scripture. You see that in the Old Testament with Israel, how they were bound by slavery to the Egyptians. And you see how, how uh, God judged them for that. 
Within the last few centuries, we've seen it with the black race, and today we see it with other races as well. So let me make it clear right here that the Bible clearly condemns ethnocentrism or esteeming one race over another race. This is what Paul rebuked Peter for in Galatians 2 when Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles and he was eating with them and fellowshipping with them and then he started hanging back. And the Bible also clearly condemns exploitation of the poor. And you see that common thread running all through Scripture. And even though Scripture doesn't condemn slavery all although it promotes the well-being of slaves, it lifts up the status of a slave much higher than it does that of the surrounding cultures. The other cultures around, um, around that region at that time were much harsher on slaves and didn't lift their status at all. In its cultural context, Scripture provides a radically different approach to the slave's status. Let's look at a few Scriptures regarding this. Uh, let's take the Hebrews passage here. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Let's look at the Ephesians 6-9 passage. Masters, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. One more, let's look at the Colossians 4 passage. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. To, so to sum up this introduction, although the Bible does not in an outright manner condemn non-racial forms of slavery, it does in fact condemn racism, exploitation of the poor, and harsh treatment of slaves. Honestly, in my opinion, the Bible's teaching regarding the master-slave relationship should cause it to look a whole lot different than anything that we've ever seen. I would say even in our fair employment society. And with that in mind, it should probably look a whole lot like a good, fair employer hiring the services of an honest, hardworking employee, a relationship where freedom, fairness, and justice abounds. And that's going to kind of drive us for the rest of this message. But I also conclude this from it, that it's a radical call for believers to rely on the gospel alone to change the social problems of our day. The gospel and the gospel alone has the power to change lives. You know, we, we get involved in socially active roles a lot of times, but as we do that, it's my opinion that that's a good thing, but we need to put our total confidence in the power of the gospel to really change the world. That's the main thrust of this message. So as we jump into today's text, we immediately see the struggle of translators in dealing with this word doulos or slave. The ESV deals with the word in a forthright manner, which is why I chose that translation today. 
But not all translations translate it like this. The NIV translators translate doulos as servant, which softens, if not changes, the meaning of the word altogether. Their struggle with the idea of slavery kind of led them to do that. And although uh, I think, you know, our feelings about slavery and our hatred for it, although that's a legitimate struggle, I still don't think that relieves us from our duty to faithfully translate, interpret, and exegete the word properly. We've still got that uh, responsibility. So what kind of theological implications could occur if we soften that word doulos? I think this is very important for us today to think about this. Well, doesn't Paul say all through the Scriptures that he's a doulos of Jesus Christ? I mean, you look through all of his introductions, his letters, his epistles, and so many times he introduces himself as Paul, a doulos of Jesus Christ. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. He tells people to be slaves of righteousness. So, as reprehensible to us as the idea of slavery is, and I want you guys to get that. I really believe that. Uh, the Bible repeatedly exhorts us to be slaves of Christ and slaves to righteousness. The fact that we esteem Christ in this way as our Lord is in no way softened in the Scripture. You never see that idea, that translation, that word doulos. You never see that softened at all. It's just straightforward. It's just very raw. We are rightfully His slaves. But the reason this is a big deal today is because there's so many people today promoting an idea that you can submit to Jesus as, as, as a Savior, but you don't necessarily have to submit to Him as Lord. And uh, I think that's a total distortion of the gospel. What, what this teaching really says is that a person can get saved, uh, and then they can just not walk with Christ the rest of their days. And then when they die, they're going to go to heaven, but they're only going to lose rewards. That's what that teaching says. But this is not the idea of doulos. According to Kittle's Definitive Dictionary of New Testament Expressions, doulos stresses the slave's dependence on his Lord. And what I hope that you guys will see through this message is first and foremost a proper understanding of your role as it relates to Jesus Christ because that's really the foundation of our submission to our earthly masters is our submission to Jesus Christ. The fact is if a person doesn't have a proper understanding of submission to our heavenly master, it's doubtful we'll ever submit to our earthly masters. Um, so if you find yourself struggling at work with authority, I would encourage you guys first and foremost to check your relationship with Christ. You may be struggling to be a due loss of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ. So, in fact, the issue of submission is our first principle for today, which says employees should submit themselves to their own employers in everything. Now, this term, to be submissive, comes from the Greek word hupotasestai or the root word hupotasso. Hupo meaning under and tasso meaning to arrange. Ultimately, the term meant... Uh, to arrange troops in military fashion under the command of a leader. But also in non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. The term, the next term, to their own, comes from the word idios and is an adjective denoting the act of taking ownership in the task given. 
to their own refers to the serious and personal ownership we should take in our work as given by a sovereign God who works all things for His glory and for His good, even and especially our place of employment. So God's placement, our work, is a divine assignment. And with this in mind, if we really believe that, that our jobs and our bosses are something unique and God-given, if we really believe that, we're not going to work unto an earthly boss as much as we're going to work unto the Lord. It's going to change the way we view that. We should realize the sacredness of our employment. Providence undergirds a strong work ethic. The term here for master is the Greek word despotis. And it's nearly synonymous with the, with the Greek word kyrios or Lord. They're really closely tied together. And it describes a ruler. This word uh, despotis describes a ruler with absolute authority over his subjects. Now, the, the link between kyrios and despotis is so, so tight that when you start trying to distinguish these two words, it's like splitting hairs. And so there's a guy who did this for us, Professor Murray J. Harris, said this, that curios signifies sovereign Lord and despotis signifies absolute Lord. So what's the point? It's this. The position of an earthly despotist or a master, that's a weighty position. It carries with it absolute authority. Your boss has absolute authority. However, it doesn't carry the title of Sovereign Lord. Only God Himself carries that kind of authority. So every earthly ruler and exalted position, no matter how powerful, no matter how powerful, all fall under the authority of the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ. So that should give you guys comfort. Thus Paul writes in Philippians, Therefore God has exalted Himself and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, you know, I know we've got some masters in here, some, some bosses in earthly employment. And I want to encourage you guys to take heed how you guys lead. Uh, because one day you guys are going to uh, stand before the ultimate sovereign authority who will give an account, and you'll give an account for your own submission, not necessarily to any other earthly authority, but certainly to Jesus Christ, the final authority. But as we've said before, being obedient to physical authority is a pretty good ind indicator of where somebody is spiritually. In fact, I think it's kind of like a spiritual thermometer. It's a gauge of where somebody is spiritually. And one of the biggest problems that I've seen with professing believers, and I think you guys have too, is that too many folks compartmentalize their faith. They, they go to work, and, and it's like... The whole going to church thing and the whole reading your Bible thing is over here in one compartment. And then you got the whole everything else over here. And it really confuses all the people that you're around. And it just comes from compartmentalizing your faith. And I think that's really a complete misunderstanding of the gospel. Because when the gospel of Jesus Christ regenerates a soul, it regenerates that person in every area of their life. Their work too. I mean, it's going to change your work ethic. If, if you know Christ, it's going to change the way that you go to work. It's going to change the way that you submit to your boss. So God calls us to be submissive to our own employers and everything. 
But this kind of begs the question, should I submit to my employer even when he's asking me to do something unethical? And I don't know if any of you guys have ever been through this. I would say you probably have, even if it's little bitty things. For example, if your boss were to ask you to lie about some product that you were selling or something like that. Um, I think it would be safe to say that your first priority is to walk faithfully with God. Say, if we use that as a case study right there, we know that the Bible says to put away falsehood and speak truth with your neighbor, Ephesians 4. You also got to remember that your earthly boss, he only has um, command over your flesh, not your spirit. He can't order your conscience. He can't tell you what to believe or what not to believe. But you can be assured that if your boss asks you to do something where you're going to sin if you do it, you need to struggle with that. And ultimately, you don't need to lie, as is in this case. The question remains is how can I honor, on one hand, honor my God-given authority to my boss, but at the same time refuse to sin? Peter addresses this issue in 1 Peter 2, 13-25, when he says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He didn't revile in return. When He suffered, He didn't threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in this passage you see the tension here of being subject on one hand to God-given authority because God is the one who put that authority into our lives according to verse 14 and then in verse 17 Peter resolves the tension for us in this way and I pointed it out he says to fear God and then honor the emperor and so I think this is Peter's way of saying look first and foremost you need to follow Christ and then secondary is following your boss's will but as the next paragraph unfolds what I see here is kind of a a peaceful a winsome uh, kind of resistance. It's it's very humble. Um, I don't think it should be a thing that when you're struggling 
you know, to not sin, that you do it in a mean, arrogant, uh, self-centered kind of manner. I think what Peter is laying the foundation for here is that uh, that we should appeal to our bosses. It's one. The picture here is one of humble, peaceful resistance, like Jesus, who suffered not for doing evil, but for doing good. In fact, that's the example that Peter uses is of Jesus Christ suffering for doing what's right in verses 21 through 25. So you're told in verse 9a of Titus, our text for today, you're told in 9a of Titus to submit to your employer in everything, but you're also commanded in 1 Peter to fear God and honor the emperor. And you're also told to suffer for doing what's right, not what's wrong. So, therefore, when commanded to do something that would be sin to you, the first thing I think you should do is appeal to your boss. Appeal to to your boss. Try to win him over. Appeal to him and seek his favor in the situation. Then if the situation doesn't change, uh, as you humbly appeal, then peaceably resist. If you suffer then for doing what's right, then that's God's will according to 1 Peter. That's God's will for you, and you should rejoice for suffering in that way. Now, this submission to our uh, bosses works itself out in two practical ways. And Paul knew the people of Titus. You remember he's already put forth the characterization of who the Cretans were in chapter 1 when he called them uh, liars. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And he knew that this was going to run against the grain of their society. And I think this really runs against the grain of our society. You guys who are bosses today, well, I I even hear you guys that are are working with other folks. You struggle with this. You struggle with seeing people uh, be lazy. Even people that name the name of Christ, that they they live this way when they're at church or when they're hanging out with uh, other Christian folks and then they go to work and, uh, you know, They'll even, they'll even use the boss's time to work on their Sunday school lesson. You know, I don't know. That's just, that's just a little odd for me. So anyway, um, he tells them in two practical ways that they can submit to their masters. First, he tells them to strive to please, please their bosses and not argue with them. Today, I want to encourage you guys, submit to your bosses and try to please them. Striving to please the master can possibly refer to letting them call the shots or give the direction for the work that's supposed to be done since it says be well-pleasing and not argumentative. So put yourself under their authority. Uh, And when it comes to your assignments, put your assignments under their authority. Uh, Sometimes I see see people kind of using their assignments that their boss gives them. I kind of see them using that as a power play when we should really be putting each assignment under our boss's authority and use each project as an opportunity to glorify God uh, through our obedience to authority. Now, pleasing the master could also refer to doing our best at each task given as opposed to just being lazy and sloppy and what Paul uh, accused them of as being evil, lazy gluttons. I think bosses deal with this way too often even from professing believers, employees who just don't give 100% in what they're doing. But Paul also instructs sl- slaves in the area of not pilfering or stealing, 
but showing all good faith or showing that they can be trusted. Your boss should be able to trust you. If they walk off the job site, they shouldn't have to worry as to whether or not you're going to get your job done. Uh, one of the greatest temptations on the work site is not necessarily to steal something material, although I think that would fall under this category. You shouldn't steal material things from your work. But I think the biggest uh, way that folks steal is to steal time from their bosses. Believers should be hard workers, uh, given a full 60 minutes of work for every hour of pay. You know, and that's not just good raising from your parents. I mean, this is scriptural stuff right here. Um, we should work hard at everything we do, even the menial task. You know, if you're not doing anything and your boss asks you to go sweep the shop, we should be willing to do that and do that with a heart of submission. This leads us to the last point, the last principle, which is the reason for all of this anyway. We said earlier that Paul's whole goal in life was to glorify God and to move the gospel forward. And he sums up this concept with that very thought when he says this, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So everything we've said regarding your relationship between you and your employer has one goal with it, and that's to advance the gospel. It's not about you or following a list of rules or trying to follow a self-help program that leads to a better you. It's not about us at all. It's about lifting God up so that our bosses will adorn the gospel of God. The term there that they may adorn is from the word cosmosin, from the root word cosmeo. And we get from it our English word cosmetic. It's a cosmetic term meaning to arrange or to put in order and was often used in reference to furnishing a room or decorating. In 1 Peter 3, this is the word that Peter used to describe how the uh, holy women of old adorned themselves. John uses it uh, in Revelation 21 to describe how heaven came down and was adorned like uh, a bride for her husband. And later on in that same chapter, John notes how heaven was adorned with beautiful uh, jewels and pearls. So here in Titus, Paul uses adorning a doctrine as a metaphor. The point is that the Christian employee should see his or her willing, pleasing, honest submission to earthly authority as a springboard for our boss to adorn the doctrine of God, to see, to see authority and the gospel is a beautiful thing. So how do we do it? Or can we even do it? Uh, I, know, I know here at this church, we don't preach a self-help kind of gospel. Uh, I would say that we do this only through God who enables us and works through us. He does it through us. In fact, the scripture says uh, that it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 So, we don't become better employees by trying to become better employees. We become better employees by abiding in Christ and watching Him transform our lives 
for His glory.